Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I've got a new show for you this week. Uh, we're going to talk about the Microsoft Edge browser. We don't talk about that very often because I don't often recommend it, but it is, you know, on by default on all Windows machines. Uh, got an interesting story about how the uh, Microsoft Edge browser was caught secretly whitelisting a bunch of sites for the uh, Adobe Flash Player, and I'll tell you why that's a big deal. Then we'll talk about some medical record software companies who are selling patient data, who they, they claim, of course, the data has been anonymized, but... Uh, the devil's always in the details, and it could be affecting up to 5 million people in Ontario, Canada. We're going to talk about a hijacked Twitter account in Florida. A Florida mayor uh, had their account hacked, and among the many other horrible things that were tweeted in that account was a nuclear missile alert, <laughs> kind of like we had in Hawaii uh, not that long ago. So we're going to talk about that. I'll talk briefly about a, a vulnerability on uh, many Mac computers and even some Windows computers and Linux computers called Thunderclap. Uh, it has to do with Thunderbolt. They always have these kind of clever names that go along with <laughs> whatever the vulnerability is. Uh, so it'll, talk, it'll be about uh, Thunderbolt ports. Uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, brief mention of a new EFF initiative called Fix It Already, which is really great, and I'll talk a little bit about that. And finally, we'll wrap up with Comcast Xfinity Mobile running into some problems because they had really horrible default passcodes on their phones, which allowed eventually identity theft. Uh, so not good. So anyway, let's get into the news. All right, first up, we'll talk about the Microsoft Edge browser. Now, Microsoft, of course, dominated the market for many, many years with Internet Explorer. And in fact, got into some real regulatory issues, particularly in Europe, because it was basically treated as a monopolistic move because it was embedded in every one of Windows installs, and it was, the, of course, the default browser, and as we like to say, the tyranny of the default. Uh, again, I stole that term from Steve Gibson. I can't take credit. Where the default thing, whatever that is, is often the thing that everybody uses because nobody takes the time to change it. Microsoft has decided at some point, uh, a couple years back, that they wanted to start over, start fresh, and uh, do a whole new web browser, and they called it Microsoft Edge. And, of course, that's built into all Windows 10 machines. And... As a browser, it's okay. Uh, funny enough, they've decided that they're going to not do most of the work themselves. They're going to abandon a lot of the custom work they've done and build it off of Chromium, which is the, the base layer for the Chrome browser by Google. And the Chromium layer, of course, is open source and free to use, and many other browsers use that as well. And, you know, so, you know, Microsoft Edge is, by, is on everyone's Windows 10 machine by default, so, you know, people will start using that. The Edge browser on Microsoft's Windows 10 apparently had a hidden whitelist of websites, about 58 websites or 60, 58 or 60 websites that would automatically allow the Adobe Flash Player to run. Now, we talked about the Adobe Flash Player many times on this program because it's awful. It's a security nightmare and it's been around for way, way too long. It should have died a long time ago. Uh, and they're, con they're still, every month, pushing out major critical vulnerability fixes in Adobe Flash. And unfortunately, because it was so popular, it's used all over the web, and there are still a lot of sites that haven't been updated and still rely on the Adobe Flash Player to work. And it's no longer needed. HTML5, the latest version of the web language, all the, the language that describes all the web pages you see today, uh, it has all those features built in, and Adobe Flash is no longer needed. But like I said, there's many websites that still use it because, you know, it takes time and effort to convert to the new thing. And if something's already working, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, I'm telling you, it's broke. Flash is horrible. <laughs> so, and a lot of browsers know this now, and a lot of browsers don't let you 
uh, run won't automatically run Flash content anymore. And you know, it's often an advertisement or a video or something. You've got a web page. As now, you maybe see like a play button on or something, or maybe it'll pop up a thing saying, you know, do you want to play this Flash? Whatever. So that's good. At least it's not playing by default because Flash has been a, a way the bad guys have gotten into web browsers uh, and have hacked computers. I mean, it's just it's just horrible. Anyway, so Naked Security, which is the Sophos blog, and Sophos is of course one of the AV products that I recommend from time to time if you're going to do one, the free one. Um, but it's a great blog and it's got some really good security stuff. So let me just read from this article and then I'll talk about it. Until this month, Microsoft Windows 10 Edge browser could skip over its Are You Sure warnings about Flash content on 58 websites thanks to a bypass list kept hidden from users. Google's Project Zero researcher Ivan Fratic, maybe I'm pronouncing that wrong, said he stumbled on the list last November when he was when he analyzed domain hashes inside the Edge HTML plugin policy.bin file. Fratic eventually discovered 56 of the 58 hashes to be bypassed list of domains that included Facebook, MSN, Deezer, and Yahoo Japan, which all contained some legacy Flash content. Having a bypassed list built into Edge is risky, says Fratic. Flash is well known for vulnerabilities, which is why users are regularly reminded either to run it only when necessary or better still, not run it at all. Although far fewer websites are using Flash than a few years ago, Flash hasn't disappeared entirely. As a result, some browsers still have Flash built in, although how each browser supports it varies slightly. Chrome, Opera, and Edge include Flash, but disable it by default. Users must choose to turn it on, implemented in Edge through something called Click to Run. Firefox and Safari don't have Flash at all by default, so you have to download an Adobe plugin to get Flash working, which is great, by the way. That's the way it should be. From Windows 10 version 1703 onward, running Flash under Edge's click-to-run setting was deliberately made more inconvenient. First, you had to enable Flash, and then you'd see a Do you want to allow Adobe Flash to run on this site? pop up every time you came across a site that uh, that wanted to use it. The only way around the recurring pop-ups was to choose the Always Allow option except that it now seems that Microsoft had hit, had a hidden list that would quietly sidestep the pop-up on your behalf for 58 sites. In February's Patch Tuesday, Microsoft trimmed the Edge bypass list from 58 entries to just two, both of them Facebook domains, and forced the use of HTTPS. The issue of Edge running Flash without a pop-up may go away in due course. Flash is on the chopping block from 2020. But just how long Flash's actual goodbye, farewell, and amen moment will take is anybody's guess. Okay, so basically, again, um, I, I'm sure this was done con- for convenience. You know, I don't. Maybe there were some deals made on the side. I don't know. I'm only speculating. I don't know that. Um, but there were some sites where Flash was used all the time, and apparently, you know, to avoid totally annoying its customers, Microsoft made the weird call to block it in most cases, but not block it in some very common cases and have this spacious special whitelist under the covers, and they didn't tell anybody about it. So that's not good. And they have fixed it, which is, you know, that's good. I don't, still, I don't know why there were any exceptions. I don't, know, I don't know why they left Facebook as an exception. But uh, just to summarize, Adobe Flash is old technology, doesn't is no longer needed. Uh, if you have it in your web browser, you should remove it. It's built into some browsers, as I just said, uh, Chrome, Opera, and Edge, which are all based on Chromium, I believe, all have Flash embedded in the browser. You don't have to install it. The good thing about that is that those browsers make sure that it's always up to date, and which means it's always patched against the latest bugs that are found. So in that sense, it's good. But generally speaking, you don't need it anymore, and you should remove it if at all possible. 
Um, Flash is just horrid for for security and cannot die fast enough. All right, next up, let's talk about uh, medical re- uh, record software. Um, and that is what we call uh, electronic medical records or EMRs. Everyone's going paperless, right? That's all your medical history is now being digitized and kept online and kept in computers. And of course, you hope that that's being kept safely. You know, back in the day when it was your patient file and it was actually physical pieces of paper, it was probably in some records department in your doctor's office and there's only one copy of it. And, uh, you know, if someone wanted to see it, they actually had to physically take that file. Well, of course, no longer. That's all being kept electronically. And because a lot of doctor's offices aren't going to buy their own system, they buy into some other system. And so they tend to be kept online. And of course, you know, that means that they're kept off site. And hopefully what that means is that they're secure, but it's being basically centralized into some other service that offers, uh, you know, this EMR capability. And the downside of that is, is those companies are sitting on a mountain of very valuable data and thinking that they can monetize that data. And uh, here's a story from uh, Ontario, Canada, that should give you an idea how that might work. Let me read this from this article from uh, The Star. There's a booming business in patient medical records, and up to 5 million Ontarians are part of that boom, whether they know it or not. As doctors and pharmacies across the province have switched from paper charts to electronic medical records, or EMRs, a company saw a business opportunity. One of the companies that sells and supports EMR software in primary care practices in Ontario is also selling health data on the side. The company anonymizes the data, that is, strips names and other identifying information from the health records, and then sells it to IQVIA, a U.S.-based health data giant. IQVIA's main customer is the pharmaceutical industry. Pharmaceutical companies use the EMR data to track the use of their drugs, identify untapped markets, and plot marketing strategies. Physicians, or the clinics they work for, must consent to the sale of anonymized patient data. It's unclear, however, if physicians are making money from the sales or if the profits go to the EMR company. There's no legal obligations to tell patients about or to compensate patients for the sale of their anonymized data. The system operates in a gray zone of privacy rules. Once patient health information is anonymized, it's no longer covered by the privacy laws in Canada. This practice, however, raises several concerns, including the risk of re-identification of individuals in the anonymized data and the lack of active monitoring by a regulator. According to Adrienne Siegel, Ontario MD's chief privacy officer, about 85% of Ontario physicians now use EMRs in their practice. EMRs contain records of every visit, health condition, consultation letter, procedure, and drugs prescribed for each patient. In 2009, IMS Brogan, now owned by IQVA, the giant in the field, realized that the Ontario EMR primary care data was worth money. It asked Privacy Analytics, a Canadian company that specializes in the anonymization of data, to work with a large EMR company in our t- to work with a large EMR company in Ontario. This would allow IMS Brogan to purchase the EMR data while, quote, protecting patient privacy, unquote. The venture was successful, and Privacy Analytics, now also owned by IQVA, stated last year that IMS Brogan, quote, now has the potential to access the records of up to 5 million patients from a network of 5,850 providers working in more than 2,600 primary care sites in the Canadian province of Ontario, unquote. Dr. David Chan, the creative Oscar EMR, is opposed to the data sale. He is concerned about the risks of, to patients. Because of the need to leave the data usable for analysis, there is always a small risk of re-identifying an individual in the data set. For example, even though anonymization would remove patients' names, dates of birth, and addresses, the data may still contain their ages, 
partial postal codes, lists of health conditions, and drug names. If someone has a rare health condition, people viewing the data set could use the other information in the data to identify the individual. A challenging area, however, is predicting the risk of de-identification if the data is linked to other data sets. IQVA says it links data sets to, quote-unquote, enrich them. For example, patient survey data linked to EMR data can tell a pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical company why patients stop taking their drugs, not just when. Even if the risk of de-identification is low in an anonymized EMR data set, the extra information may make it easier to identify individual people once it is linked to another data set. There's no active monitoring of the EMR companies that gather, de-identify, and sell data, or of the company that buys and links the data in Ontario. Ontario MD does not provide oversight or conduct audits. The EMR companies have to sign off agreeing to privacy standards, but then after that, it is based on trust. All right, so that's a bit of a long article. It's, um, but the upshot here is that all our all of our data is being digitized. And because many of our, you know, local doctors can't, you know, really handle that, and there are plenty of companies out there willing to do it, they contract these services out. Um, now, there are privacy regulations in particular around healthcare data. But as you can see in this case, there are loopholes. And one of those loopholes is, okay, well, you can't sell the data unless you anonymize it. Well, how how good of a job are they doing at anonymizing that data? That's the real question. And then the other thing brought up by this article is, well, if you take this set of data that's been anonymized and another set of data that's been anonymized, and they've got different things in them, and you find some way to merge those two together and line them up, the combination of that data may effectively de-anonymize that data. At the end of the day, this all comes down to capitalism, gone amok. Uh, we are monetizing all this data. We are creating all sorts of data exhaust as we go through our lives and it's more and more all the time and we're leaving these footprints and this digital data and this digital exhaust everywhere and there's companies out there who see the value in that data and they're just hoovering it all up and there's really not enough regulation around what they can and can't do with that data so uh, i know people don't like the word regulation um, but of course bruce schneier was very quick to point out when we had him on the show you know we have things that we have people in the government that make sure that the food you're eating isn't poisoned. We have people that make sure that the planes you're flying on are safe. Uh, that's all because of regulation. So there is a place for, there is a place for regulation and that is a role that the government needs to play. And so, you know, as often the case, technology is outpacing the, that, that regulation and that there are certainly some politicians who are very anti-regulation and just want to let the quote unquote market figure this stuff out, but the market just can't handle this largely because the people you know, are you going to go to a different doctor because of the of whether or not they're anonymizing and selling your data? Would you even know to ask that question? I bet the doctor doesn't even know. Um, so we need regulation. All right, next up, uh, and another cautionary tale for using better passwords and uh, two-factor authentication. Uh, the floor, there was a Florida mayor uh, of Tampa who normally has a you know regular mayor type account where all sorts of positive info you know. Uh, all sorts of positive messages about Tampa and, you know, probably very positive sounding things. Well, his, his Twitter account was, ha was hijacked. Uh, and let me just read you briefly from this article and you'll understand how this got really bad really quickly. All right. So from again, naked security, another naked security blog, it says officials in Tampa, Florida were scrambling to regain control of the mayor's Twitter account this week after a hacker hijacked it to post bomb threats and child sex abuse images. 
Mayor Bob Buckhorn's account is normally filled with pro-Tampa messages. Early on Thursday morning, however, things went sideways. The mayor's account was was hacked to post messages, most of which were too vile to reproduce here. The imposter's tweets included racist and sexist tweets, images of pornography, and child sex abuse images. There was also this tweet, and this is all caps on, on this official Bob Buckhorn account. It says... Emergency alert, ballistic missile missile thread, it says thread, not threat, ballistic missile thread inbound to Tampa Bay area. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. In another tweet, the hacker reportedly tweeted Tampa Airport with this message. Quote, I have hidden a bomb in a package somewhere, looking forward to seeing some minorities die, unquote. Tampa City Hall was quick to correct the record with communications director Ashley Bowman, issuing the following statement, quote, Earlier this morning, we noticed someone hacked Mayor Buckhorn's Twitter account. This was clearly not Major Buckhorn. Upon noticing the hack, we immediately began investigating these reprehensible tweets. We will work with our Tampa Police Department as well as all investigators to figure out how this breach was made. We urge residents to change their passwords and continue to alert officials when they see an unlikely change in account activity. We are working with law enforcement to investigate all threats made by this hack, unquote. However, City Hall still spent five hours wresting control of the account back from the hacker. After working with Twitter, it finally gained access at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, at which point it was able to delete the offending tweets. How did the attacker get in? Experts rolled out the usual weakness, including weaknesses, including poor passwords. With that in mind, the use of passphrases or strong passwords with random characters and the avoidance of words found in the dictionary are all useful approaches to help protect your Twitter password. Better still is to use two-factor authentication, which Twitter supports. So I often tell people how important it is that they make sure that they secure their social media and their email accounts. And a lot of people think, oh, what do I care? Who's going to get into my Twitter feed or who's going to read my email? It's not just about reading these things. It's about actually taking over and acting as you and you know, potentially sending messages to all the people that follow you or all the people that are in your contact list and tricking them into doing something bad or, in this case, creating havoc. I mean, I, I, I don't know how many people actually reacted to the ballistic missile thread <laughs> inbound to the Tampa area. But I mean, that's a pretty chilling thing to see if you happen to follow the mayor's Twitter feed and all of a sudden that pops up and says it's not a drill. You know, if you didn't see all the other stuff going along with it, maybe maybe that one got you. So, of course, I say it all the time, but make sure you're locking down your accounts. Uh, don't use the same password on multiple sites. Use strong, unique passwords with crazy random stuff that you can't remember, which means that you need to use a password manager because no human could ever remember these passwords. Uh, and then use something else. Use two-factor authentication, which means they not only need to somehow get your password, which, you know, if they're clever and something was set up right, maybe they could bypass the password. But if they also require two-factor authentication, then they also need your mobile phone. So... Uh, if the mayor of Tampa had done these things, my guess is this would not have been a story. All right, two more quick news stories, and then we'll get to our main story and our tip of the week. Uh, there's a new vulnerability, uh, hardware vulnerability, as it turns out, against Thunderbolt connections, uh, which are very common now on Macs. Uh, Macintosh computers are, uh, are often quick to adopt new technologies and to shun older technologies. So if you've bought a Mac in the last couple of years, I'm sure you've seen these. They're the little USB-C form factor, uh, which is kind of cool. It's kind of like the old Apple Lightning port. It's reversible, like unlike every other USB plug you've ever had. 
Um, you know, it can plug in either way. It's it, very, very small. It's about the size of a micro USB, uh, but it's, un, it's non-directional. Uh, it looks kind of like a really long, thin oval. Uh, that's the, the form factor there is called USB version C, USB-C. Um, but the technology that runs on top of that can be just regular USB, uh, but it can also include this technology from Intel um, called Thunderbolt. And Thunderbolt is a very high-speed uh, data connection that allows all sorts of really cool things to happen. You can send power over this. You can drive displays over this. Um, you can do networking over this. It does everything. Unfortunately, the way it gets a lot of that speed um, and, and versatility is it kind of bypasses some of the normal security checks uh, that you might have in, you know, like a software app might have to go through because um, it needs direct access to video cards and networking cards and, and all these sorts of things. So Thunderbolt's fast, but it also turns out to be uh, a little bit dangerous. And this Thunderclap technique requires that you have a rogue device of some sort and you connect it via this USB-C Thunderbolt port. And if you do, you can actually basically hack that device within seconds. Now, it does require physical presence. So, you know, you would have someone have to have physical access to your device. But if they do, they can use, they can use this attack to kind of poke around in the memory on that device and try to pull out things like passwords and encryption keys and, and other things that could let them completely compromise your, your computer. Uh, and this is not just Macs. It just happens to be more popular in Macs right now. Thunderbolt um, connections and USB-C connections are becoming much more popular. Uh, so chances are, if you've got a recent Windows machine or a Linux machine, uh, that it probably has some of these ports on it as well. Um, again, this requires physical access. So this is not going to happen over the internet. It's not going to happen at the coffee shop. But if you're a journalist or if you're a rich, famous person or whatever, and somebody were to give you a USB-C device to plug in, they could compromise your, your system just by plugging in one of these rogue devices into a Thunderbolt port. Now, they're, they've been working behind the scenes to get a lot of these things fixed and mitigated, so uh, I think uh, at this point, uh, a lot of these things have already been fixed, and, or, or at least uh, the risk has been lowered. Um, but this is true, actually, of regular USB devices, too. We talked about this on the program a while back. There was this thing called bad USB, and these USB devices, even the old-style USB devices with the big rectangular plugs, all have a little bit of software built into them or can have a little bit of software built into them. And a lot of computers just trusted that software implicitly because it was usually, the, the point was, it was supposed to be a little driver mechanism. Like if you plugged in a new mouse or a new keyboard, uh, you could store a little bit of software uh, on the device itself that when you plugged in the computer the first time, the computer would look at that USB device, look and say, I don't recognize it. Uh, and then query the device, say, hey, do you have a driver built in? Oh, you do? Great, thanks. Let me download and install that driver. And now that my user can just use it, they don't have to do anything special. Well, that's great, except when those devices are compromised uh, and the software you're downloading is more than just a driver. It's actually malware. Anyway, so the long, as the, the, long, the long and short of this is that you do need to be careful when you're plugging in untrusted devices into any computer. Um, they may seem harmless. It may just look like a mouse. It may just be a, look like a keyboard or maybe a, even a power cable. Um, if you're, or maybe you're at an airport and you've got a public place where you could, you know, you want to just charge up your phone or charge up your laptop. You can actually infect devices that way. I'm not saying that's common. I'm not saying it's likely. I'm just saying it's possible so much so that they've actually come out with products. And I haven't seen this for USB-C yet for, um, for the more modern connectors, but the old USB connectors, 
they have these things. They, they originally called them USB condoms, and it's pretty much exactly what it sounds like. Um, USB, these USB cables can carry power and they can carry data. Um, but if you put these little adapters on, these special cables on that are power only, uh, it blocks all data transfer. So it's effectively a data condom or computer condom. You, it, you, if you use this, you know, this little nugget uh, before you connect your thing into power, because it would only transfer power. It's not going to work for a mouse or a keyboard. You have to use it for uh, power only. So if you want to just charge your phone in an airport, if you want to charge your laptop and they have a USB port or your USB-C port where you could do this, if you had a, one of these little condom devices there, some of them are called charge only or sync block. Um, there are other names for these things now too. Um, and I have yet to see one for USB-C though. I can't imagine one's going to be far off, especially after this, uh, after this story. So, uh, that would at least let you, you know, if someone's going to give you a device and you're just trying to use it for power, you know, you can put this device between the two and it would prevent any data from being transferred, which should prevent your device from being hacked by a malicious USB device. All right, next up, the, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, one of my favorite organizations, the EFF, has a new initiative called Fix It Already. Uh, and, they've, and basically, they've come up with a pseudo, like a top 10 list, actually, I think it's nine at this point, uh, of things that they really wish a lot of big companies would just go ahead and fix already. Um, just, just to give you an example, um, here's a, here's a few from their list. One, Apple should let users encrypt their iCloud backups. Totally, totally agree. And this is why I don't use iCloud. I'd love to use iCloud. It's built into all my Apple products and I'm a big Apple guy. I've got a lot of Apple products, um, but I'm not going to use iCloud until I can control the encryption of that data. Cause basically what that means is that if somebody comes knocking on Apple's door with a warrant and then Apple can hand over that data to them, um, it's so weird because Apple for almost every other situation has taken the stance where they don't even want the capability of hang, handing over that data. But iCloud is one thing they have not done yet. So EFF is right to call this one out. Apple needs to fix that and they need to do it right away. Uh, next up uh, on their list, Android should let users deny and revoke apps, internet permissions. Yes. <laughs> Apple's done a good job with this with their iOS and their iPhones. Uh, you know, you can at any point go back through settings and revoke certain uh, privileges that you've mistakenly given out or change your mind about, you know, but when you install these apps and they ask for all sorts of access, you know, let me access your contacts, let me access, access your photos, let me access your microphone, your video camera, let me access your location. Some apps need it. Most of them maybe don't, uh, but a lot of people don't think about it. And maybe after the fact, they'd like to go back and change their minds. And on Android, it's a lot harder. So again, totally agree with that. Uh, next on the list, Windows 10 should let users keep their disk encryption keys to themselves. Again, this is kind of like the one I just talked about with Apple. I mean, if I'm going to encrypt my disk, then I should be able to control that that key and not have to store it in the cloud where Microsoft could get access to it as well, meaning that Microsoft could decrypt my disk, which, you know, I want to have the option not to do that. Uh, and one more I'll, I'll read from the list, and that is that Twitter should end-to-end -end encrypt their direct messages. Again, sure, why wouldn't they? Apparently, they're not doing it, and they just really should. So this is kind of a great little list of, you know, you know, a great way to publicize some of these things that EFF would like these companies to change, and I completely agree. Uh, and uh, I've actually reached out to EFF on this, and I think we're going to be able to get somebody on the show to do an interview on these on this subject so we can dive into that a little bit deeper uh, in the future. Okay, last up. Comcast Xfinity Mobile ran into some trouble uh, recently because they're using very, very simple default PIN codes to protect their users' accounts. And because of this, uh, at least one person, and we're going to read this person's story here in a second, had their identity stolen through their phone. 
But like I was saying just you know earlier in the show about how people don't seem to value security for their email accounts and their social media accounts, they also are a little bit too flippant with their phone, with their phone security, uh, a little bit too laissez-faire. And so let me read this article and then we'll talk about it. And then we'll, that'll lead right into my tip of the week. So the Washington Post broke this story. It was the, their tech columnist who answered all sorts of things, had a short little blurb about, you know, asking people to tell them their tech horror stories. And this was this person's tech horror story. Here we go. As a customer of Comcast's Xfinity mobile service, Larry Witted says someone was able to hijack his phone number, port it to a new account on another network, and commit identity fraud. The fraudster loaded Samsung Pay onto the new phone with Witted's credit card and went to the Apple store in Atlanta and bought a computer, he said. The core of the problem, Comcast doesn't protect its mobile accounts with a unique PIN. Comcast's help site for switching carriers suggests this is to make things easier. Quote, we don't require you to create an account PIN, so you don't need to provide that information to your new carrier, unquote. And the default that it uses instead is 0000. Closely guarding your telephone account is becoming increasingly important for security. All kinds of online and financial services use text, text messages and calls to a phone number to verify identity and as a second factor in addition to passwords. Other Xfinity mobile customers have also reported having their numbers hijacked. After iComcat, and I in this case is the is the reporter from Washington Post. After I contacted Comcast, it said it was making a fix. Quote, we're aware of a very small number of customers impacted by this issue, but even having one customer impacted by this is one too many, unquote, a spokesman, a spokeswoman said in a statement. New measures that make it harder to steal phone numbers took effect shortly before I published this column. Comcast said it was, quote, working aggressively towards a pin-based solution, unquote. So how can customers protect themselves? Comcast said a fraudster still needs several pieces of customer information to port a number, including the obscure Xfinity mobile account number that usually requires a password to access. Quote, we believe this only affected customers whose passwords might have included, been included in a previous non-Comcast-related breach, unquote, the spokeswoman said. Uh, and, then, and then the columnist says, I know I'm a broken record, but this is why it's important to not reuse passwords. But this is also Comcast's fault. PIN security should have been in place since it launched the Xfinity mobile service nearly two years ago. So you may be a Comcast Xfinity mobile user. I don't know how many people out there actually using this service. But more to the point uh, of this, and which leads to my tip of the week, is it's not just your email accounts that you have to lock down. It's also your cell phone accounts. And I'm not talking just about your cell phone itself. You should definitely have some sort of a PIN code or at least a fingerprint or an uh, face ID security mechanism on your phone itself so that so if somebody steals your phone it's useless to them without your fingerprint or your your face or whatever to, to open it up you definitely want to protect your phone um if you're really worried about it i would definitely use a pin code uh, instead of using face id or some other biometric uh you know because if if you're really in danger of that and someone conks you on the head well actually that won't work because supposedly with face id your eyes have to be open but you know that could still coerce you i guess to look at the phone to unlock it or whatever so I'm not talking about just locking your phone. That's important as, too, as well. What I'm actually talking about here is locking down your your phone account. Uh, there's a lot of, because so many of the uh, two-factor authentication mechanisms today still go for the lowest common denominator, and that lowest common denominator is sending you a text message, or in some cases, calling your number um, to, to give you a PIN code. And if you have managed to clone that phone 
or uh, or somehow you know open up a new phone with that number, uh, which is a different kind of identity theft, then that other phone, that other cloned phone, or that other phone with the same number, can now get all those same will get all those same phone calls and text messages. Um, so they've basically broken your second factor authentication. Uh, and in this case, this person was actually able to use it to buy stuff because of the Google Pay um, or the Samsung Pay that was built into the phone. Apparently, somehow transferred to the new phone once he got into the account and had the access to get a new phone with that number. So that's the tip of the week. Um, if you don't know so know about it already, make sure that you check with your cell phone provider. And if there is some way, and I think all the major carriers have this, uh, make sure there's a way to put a pin on your account itself, like a secondary pin. And that way, if you're calling, can, what happens is you'll call customer service and say, hey, I lost my phone, I need a new phone. Or you go into a store and say, I lost my phone, I need a new phone. Here's my phone number. Uh, give me a new phone that works with this phone number. They'll say, okay, what's your customer support pin? And if you don't have that, they're supposed to not do, they're supposed to not do it. Now, in reality, they, you know, they may actually have some really lengthy process of trying to verify and vet uh, that you are who you say you are. And maybe that'll still bypass the pin. But um, if you don't have a pin, or in this case, if you're Comcast, if you're uh, Comcast Xfinity, and you say, oh yeah, my pin is 0000, which is a horrible, horrible default. There should never be defaults, but if there is, that shouldn't be that r- ridiculously trivial. Um, so anyway, wor- go to your cell phone, log into your cell phone provider account, uh, log into your account online and go to the security options and make sure that there is a customer support pin or some sort of other two-factor authentication uh, set up on your account to prevent somebody from, with minimal information, using your um, uh, using your using that minimal information to get another phone with your phone number in your name, and therefore have access to all your text messages and phone calls. And so that brings us to the tip of the week, and it's simply this: uh, make sure that you've got some sort of second factor authentication set up for your mobile phone account, not just for your device. Um, make sure that you've gone, you've logged into your mobile account online, gone to the security settings there and make sure there's some sort of a decent, it's probably like a customer support pin or something like that set up against your account so that whenever you do request some sort of an account change, you also have to provide that pin. And that will hopefully keep somebody else from, you know, maybe being able to do that by just gleaning some simple information from either a data data breach hack uh, or something else to impersonate you and and create a get an account or get another phone uh, with your phone number uh, and then getting all your text messages and phone calls uh, because they basically essentially cloned your phone. Uh, and of course, <laughs> if there is a pin, make sure it's set to, set to something much better than zero 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 which was the default set by Comcast Xfinity Mobile, which was obviously not good enough and allowed, uh, unfortunately, several people to have their accounts taken over in this exact way. So make sure you're protecting your cell phone online accounts uh, with whatever mechanism your carrier provides as best. If you're, if you're not sure, then call them up and tell them about the story and say, I want to make sure this doesn't happen to me. And uh, hopefully they'll walk you through whatever, whatever process they have for locking their system down and uh, preventing these sorts of hacks. All right, that's going to wrap up our show this week. Uh, I've got a couple great interviews uh, on the docket coming up soon, so stay tuned for those. And of course, I'll always be bringing you the news that I think is most important and telling you what you can do about that to protect yourself. 
Uh, as always, you can go to my website, firewallsdontstopdragons.com. You'll find my blog and my newsletter there. Uh, the blog, you can peruse and see some old issues, uh, and old tips and things that I've sent out. If you sign up for the newsletter, I'll basically send you one of those, some actionable tip uh, every two weeks. Uh, sometimes it lines up with what's on the show. Sometimes it's different. Sometimes it's nice to get it in newsletter form because then you can you know, have quick access to all the links and things I may tell you about uh, to click on to get more info. And of course, on the website, you can also find a link to my book, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. It's got over 150 tips in the book. Uh, the third edition has gotten quite beefy. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of great stuff in there uh, with step-by-step instructions and pictures and the whole bit. Uh, it's like 400 pages long or something now. Um, so it's a great gift too if you want to. If someone just got themselves a computer or you know, someone's coming of age, maybe you got a teenager coming up and going off to college and wants to learn uh, how to protect their stuff. So uh, anyway, great resource. Check that out. And if you'd like to support uh, all these efforts, you can go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, uh, and search for Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons there, and it'll tell you everything you need to know. That's it. I'll be back again next week. As usual, same bat time, same bat channel. Uh, and as always, stay safe out there, and don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>